The scripture reading today comes from Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is God's word. Okay, great. Thanks, Jenny, for that very cheery, encouraging word from the scriptures. Uh, Good morning. Those of you I've not met, my name is Jonathan, as Joe said, and I am his landlord, but not for long. I'm kicking him out. Uh, It's true, I'm kicking them out, uh, not because they're terrible, but because uh, I'm not a very good landlord and <laughs> I, need to get, I need to offload the real estate, um, but, uh, but nevertheless, um, good, to, uh, good to be here. We're in a series on Romans, uh, and I know that last week Jeff took you through the better part of chapter 2, so if you have a Bible and you want to open up to Romans, I don't know the page number of the ones that are uh, on the floor there, but uh, you can find it there <coughs> if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. Table of Contents, New Testament. Uh, it's about the fifth or sixth book, I think, in the New Testament. And the only reason I say open up to it is uh, so that you can kind of get a picture of where this passage Jenny read falls within the chapter, uh, but also in light of chapters 1 and 2 that, uh, that Jeff's already done. This is the end, though, the first section on Romans. Uh, and as Jeff probably said a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about sin over and over and over again, and so it's great that you're still coming <laughs> after those few weeks of, of sin, because it is hard, it is depressing in some senses, and yet Paul's highlighting the need for salvation. Everyone needs what he says back in chapter 1, verse uh, 16, or rather 17, a righteousness. Uh, And the great news is the gospel, in the gospel rather, we find the righteousness that we need. Uh, The Bible's answer to the question, what's wrong with the human race, is the word sin. So if you ask or a friend of yours uh, or a neighbor or whoever asks you, man, what is wrong with people? which my wife, who's a Christian, I think, uh, often says to me, she reads something really bad, really awful, and you probably do this too. I mean, what is wrong with people, right? And just something really awful. Um, what is wrong with people? The Bible's answer to that question is sin. And the first three chapters of Romans are a commentary on the origin and the nature of sin. So on your insert, uh, on one side is the passage Jenny read, on the other side is, is the outline you see there, uh, under intro, it's this passage really is the end of Paul's commentary. Uh, and he lists some pretty awful stuff in chapter 1, right? Shall I go back and read? Envy, 
murder, strife, boastful, inventors of evil, right? Not just practicers of evil, but inventors of evil. People that sit around and think about how to invent evil, right? Um, and then in chapter 2, he describes judgment. He describes not judgment in the sense of the end, but also being a judgmental person, a, a self-righteousness that hopes in the outward keeping of rituals and moral living while keeping secrets, which he promises will be revealed. So that brings us to 3, chapter 3, and Paul's closing out of his argument. Yes, we skipped over the first eight verses, honestly, because Jeff said, hey, can you do 1 through 20? And I said, hey, no, I can't do all those verses. Number one, I'm not that good of a preacher. Number two, I don't have that much time. Number three, uh, it's just too much. And uh, so, you know, stick with 9 to 20. Um, And so that's why we skipped the first eight verses, among other reasons. But he has some pretty radical things to say here. And you'll you'll see under the outline how we're going to walk through this. Number one, that is all are under sin. He seems to put everyone on equal footing. And why is that important? What are the implications of that? How does that challenge us? Number two, uh, he's arguing sin is relational before it's anything else. Sin is really the sense of everyone is going their own way, right? Those of you uh, music buffs, Jeff's not here, so this is my nod to him because he and I kind of do the, oh man, I love that you know, band, or well, I don't have quite the romance that he has with, say, John Mayer or other musicians in in the world, but I do appreciate the old Fleetwood Mac song, Go Your Own Way, uh, and I, re- I was reading some of the history of that, it was interesting, uh, go, go look it up on, on, on Wikipedia, as one band member really judging another band member as they wrote that song, and uh, Stevie Nicks was the one being judged, and she was forced to sing it, and she said every night when I was singing, I have to look over across the stage at the guy who wrote it and knew he was talking about me, it's really ugly. But it's a good illustration of sin, nonetheless. Thirdly, uh, what's the solution? Well, it is becoming silent, and I'll, I'll talk about that uh, a little bit later, in order to gain fear or become a person who fears, uh, fears God. That's where the solution to our problem really comes in, okay? So those three things. First, though, verse 9. Verse 9 is a remarkable verse, remarkable verse, because Paul says, are we Jews any better off? Better off than who? Well, better off than all the people he's talking about in chapter 1. All the awful pagans, the Greeks, the Gentiles, however you want to say that, back in chapter 1. He says, we have charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So, you got to consider Paul's background, Paul's story. Remember, he was a Pharisee of all Pharisees. He persecuted the church. He absolutely hated. He despised. He thought unclean any non-Jewish person. In fact, the word in uh, the word in Hebrew is goyim, and Jews will say it like goyim, and they'll spit because it's just gross to them, right? That was the mindset that he's coming out of. But in verse nine, he actually says both Jews and Greeks are all alike under sin. Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. So, in other words, he's saying there's no difference. Everyone. Everyone, do I need to repeat that word? Everyone, moral and immoral, religious and secular, no matter who you are, whether you've lived a life of compassion and service to the poor, so think somebody like Mother Teresa, or whether you've lived a life of exploiting people, taking advantage of them, murdered, amassed wealth on the backs of slaves, think uh, Saddam Hussein, okay? He says, 
no matter your Mother Teresa or your Saddam Hussein, we're all under sin. Okay? We're all condemned. We're all lost. Keep reading on into verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one does good. Not even one. Oh my gosh. You know, Paul, seriously? This is awful. It's depressing. Makes you want to close the Bible and just hang it up. Well, at least it does me. Um, you mean, Paul, Paul lists some pretty bad, deviant sexual sins back in chapter 1. And in contrast, there's Paul, right? Now listen, there have been few people in human history who have taken obedience to the law more seriously than this guy. Okay? And he's saying, am I any better off than these people back here in chapter 1? I mean, go back and read about what he's describing in chapter 1. It was not pretty. And he is saying, I am no better off than them. You mean, you mean to tell me, Paul, that a criminal robbing and murdering people and a morally upright Pharisee who thinks because of his good deeds and his righteousness, God owes him blessing and people owe him respect. You mean to tell me both of those people are the same? Yes. That's exactly what he's saying. And that is really, really radical. Uh, both of these people are under sin, meaning they're living under sin's power. They're, li- they're, they're, they're under sin's influence, its sway, its, its rule. That's the conclusion he's coming to in light of chapters 1 and 2. Both groups are, as he describes in uh, chapter 2, verse 8, self-seeking. Okay, Not just the people of chapter 1, but the people of chapter 2 are both uh, self-seeking. Now, Here's how this challenges us, right? When Paul, when Jesus calls us to become Christians and receive salvation, he's not calling us to stop bad living and start good living, right? He's not saying, many, uh, he's not saying start, stop living this way, start living this way. Uh, m- many people, they, they think, well, now that I'm a Christian, I need to stop doing fill in the blank and start doing fill in the blank, right? So that God will bless me, so that he'll realize he didn't waste salvation on me i gotta make i gotta make it up to him man i've lived an awful life up to this point now he saved me i gotta make it up to him and what's underneath that is an assumption that i've got to adopt a good life i've got to do the right thing and so on and if i do my part god will do his part the problem is that's not christianity Uh, no other worldview no other religion teaches what paul is saying in verse 9 hear me no other worldview or religion teaches what Paul says in verse 9. All alike are under sin. All Jews, all Greeks. Are we Jews? We who've had the law? We who know what the right thing to do is? Are we any better off? No. Not at all. The Pharisee who's kept the Ten Commandments, the murdering lunatic, are equal. He says both need righteousness. It's an unbelievable claim to say, I'm no better. It's a life-altering statement. Because you see, as a Pharisee, Paul would have looked down his nose at Greeks. He would have looked down his nose at other unclean groups of people. But the gospel and its teaching about sin has radically reoriented Paul, and it should us as well. Because for Christians, the world isn't full of good people and bad people. What's behind my wife's question of, what is wrong with people? As if to say, what, what she's saying kind of underneath that, I, I wouldn't do what I'm reading about on this article on Facebook, which half the time I tell her, how do you even know it's real? It's on Facebook, right? doesn't mean it happened. 
Somebody could have made that up. Could be the Russians. Okay, good. Some of you laughed. It's a joke, you know. But, but for Christians, the world isn't full of good people and bad people. The world is full of lost people. The world is full of people in need of salvation, of which I am one, right? All people everywhere are sinful. The theological term many hundreds of years ago that was coined to describe this is totally depraved, and that's what I'm describing. And if that's true, then it demolishes any ability we have to look down on another person, because why? What does Paul say? I'm no better because I'm no better. And this is such a big deal at the moment, right? In our national conversation, in our national, our, our cultural moment, as we want to say, politics in particular is hugely divisive. But Romans 3 verse 9 comes right into the middle of the conversation, which you're, you're dreading in a few weeks when you sit around Thanksgiving table, unless you're just going to ignore or not go to Thanksgiving because you don't want to deal with that with some of your family members who might think differently than you do or uh, n- might not disagree as well as you do or don't, right? Uh, but it comes right into the middle of this conversation and it says, you know, you're a conservative. <coughs> Joe, I'm a progressive. Actually, if we were going to be a little more reality, it's probably, <laughs> probably the other way around, right? But it says, you're a conservative, Joe. I'm a progressive, but I'm no better. Uh, no, that's not the general attitude coming out of most people. The, the, the general attitude, even in the church we're finding this, right, is you're a blank, fill in the blank, whatever it is. Politics is just one that I know at the moment is very divisive. But think of any label, think of any grouping, and you say, you're a and I'm a. You don't think, but I'm no better off. You think, no, you need to become like me, right? That's the idea. And it creates a great deal of self righteousness and self-seeking and self-gratification so we need paul's corrective but why is it true well because of the way paul defines sin so if you look there undergoing our own way sin is relational before it is anything else it's it's fundamentally about a direction of life why is that significant well first of all the bible starts from the conviction that human beings are not primarily thinking beings but lovers, loving beings, okay? It defines human beings by what they desire, not by what they know. Think about the phrase, go with your gut. What do we mean by that when we say, just go with your gut? Do we mean make decisions based on your hunger level at the moment? (laughs) No, of course not. What do we mean? It's small enough in here, which is part of the reason why I love it. We can talk, have a conversation. I thought about, like, getting a board and, You know, Jeff was like, I don't care what you talk about or what you do. Because he's just kind of like, I need to get on vacation. I said, (laughs) how do you you want me to go with this? And he said, I I, I really don't care what you do. (laughs) You know, you can can get up there and uh, it doesn't have to be a sermon. But what do we mean by that? Go with your gut. Go with your what? Yeah, trust your first instinct. Go with kind of like your... your, uh, your core conviction, your feelings even. Okay, since when do we associate the gut with feelings? I thought that was the heart, right? Uh, But it's interesting, that has worked its way into our conversation. Of course, we don't mean to encourage one another to make significant life decisions based on how hungry you are, right? Go with your gut at the moment. No, but the Bible refers to inner parts. 
your inner parts, and other strange phrases to describe the very deepest places from which come our motivational drives, why you do what you do. Where are you aiming yourself? What direction are you headed, right? That's the idea. And here's the point. We're always living intentionally, whether we realize it or not. You're always aiming your life at something. You're, you're, you have a direction. might be a good job. might be toward a reputation, a certain family dynamic, retirement, travel, becoming the CEO, maybe just survival. But the point is we're after something, and the engine driving us toward whatever that end is, is our heart. And if that's true, then it makes sense that sin is a carrying out of that aim. It's when the direction of life is aimed at something other than God, right? Your your life direction can be one of two places. It can be God or something else. Very simple, right? that's, That's the way the Bible presents it. And when your life is directed at something other than God, it's a God substitute, and the Bible calls that idolatry. So sin is not so much a matter of whether you're doing good things or bad things. Sin is mainly a matter of what you're doing, you're doing for. Okay? See the difference there? Sin is a matter of what you're doing, you're doing for. So let's look at what Paul says, verses 10 and following, very stark in their description. In fact, let me read back through some of it. Not all of it, but he says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Uh, Do those verses bother you? What if I tell you, I'm talking about you? Does that offend you? I mean, it may not offend you. You may be too scared to say it out loud in here. It's okay. I don't care if it offends you. I, I would love it if, you know. Yeah, that's offensive. Right? But I love disagreements. One of those weird people that enjoys conflict and enjoys, you know, different points of view and so forth and so on. But the fact is, they do offend a lot of people. In fact, they offend a lot of people who are new to Christianity. Golly, the Bible says that about me? I'm not that bad, right? Is anybody in here this bad? Well, the Bible says yes, you all are. I am too, right? So I want to look at two statements Paul makes where he kind of gets underneath, or at least they, 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 they're good summaries for what we're trying to understand with the fact that sin is relational. It's about a direction, okay? The first one is verse 10. He says, or excuse me, 11, no one understands, no, one's, no one seeks for God. Sin makes us want to get away from God, get out from underneath his control, go our own way instead of his way, right? And notice what he does not say. He doesn't say no one seeks blessings from God, no one seeks forgiveness from God, no one seeks help from God. He doesn't say that. He says no one seeks for God. No one seeks God. Because, of course, when the chips are down, so to speak, we're all happy to try and really control God by saying things like, and you tell me if this has ever come out of your mouth, something like this. God, I know I've not been as good or as kind or as generous as I should be, but if you'll get me out of this one, I swear, I swear, hand to God. I mean, hand to heart, hand to whoever I need to make it to, right? I swear I'll do better. Anybody ever said anything like that? 
you know, you know you have. <laughs> I have. Maybe more recently than I would care to admit, you know. If you'll just rescue my son from this, you know, unkindness or, or, or help my daughter to be more or, you know, whatever the case might be, I swear I'll do better. And Paul is saying that we're really not after God himself in those things. We're seeking something from him. We're happy to use him. We're happy to try and control him. But he says you're not seeking God himself. Your life is aimed at self-gratification. It's a self-centered prayer. It's possible to do lots of good things, to give to the poor, to forgive others, instead of hurting them. Those are all virtuous things, but what's underneath them? And his point is, if your life is aimed at self, you'll serve others for yourself. Uh, But if your life is aimed at God, you'll serve others for God. No one seeks for God for God's sake. That's what he's saying. No one seeks for God in and of himself or for the beauty of who he is or what he does. In addition, he says, all have turned aside. This is another sense of direction. It's another sense of relation. Where are you aimed Isaiah 53, uh, he says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each to his own way. Or in the call to worship, if you look back at that in your uh, worship folder, okay, uh, the one, two, three, fourth paragraph under the all that's in bold print, we have all become like one who is unclean. This would have been deeply offensive to Israel to hear uh, words like this because they're referring to unclean they're referring to non-israelites they're referring to gentiles and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment some versions of the bible say filthy rags we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away it's the same idea our iniquities take us away take us away where whatever way we want to go in the moment or in that season or all of our life even, right? So if everyone has the same problem, and it is this pervasive and deep, then what is the solution? And that brings us to uh, last point there, becoming silent in order to fear. What's the solution? Well, the solution involves shutting our mouths so that we might stand in wonder at God's salvation. Now, we haven't mentioned the middle paragraph on your insert Okay, I read one of those statements, but if you look at the the middle paragraph on the scripture side, it says things like this. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and mercy. In the way of peace they have not known. Yikes. That sounds awful. Doesn't it? You know anybody who you would describe as having an open grave for a throat or using their tongue to deceive or that the venom of asps is under their lips? Anybody? I mean, some of us might have said, well, like maybe Hitler. Right? And that's part of the point is we're thinking, well, maybe, maybe him, maybe him, maybe her. But the mirror, never, the mirror never pops up right in front of us. Scared to think of ourselves like that. But if this is describing us, we might look nice and put together on the outside, as all of you do, with the exception of maybe Joe, uh, this morning as you come to church. 
But what Paul is saying is when God looks at us, spiritually speaking, it's night of the living dead. You're all, night, you're all in a night of the living dead episode. And you're all like those night of the living dead people. Right? A living dead person, also known as a zombie maybe or something like that. The point is ugly, ugly, ugly on the inside. So I hope you're beginning to see how talking this, <clears throat> this starkly about sin for several weeks in a row should cause a longing to emerge. It should cause a need for what, what is our hope? What in the world hope do I have? How in the world can I be healed? This is really, really, really bad news, and that's Paul's point. Unless you appreciate the depravity of your own heart, you won't grasp the miracle of salvation in Jesus. This passage gives us uh, two hints at our solution. The first is in verse 19. So if you look there, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. See, in verse 21, which uh, we'll get to next week, Paul begins to open up salvation. He begins to say, this is how you can receive salvation from Jesus. But in order to do that, you first have to what? Shut up. Spiritually speaking. In case I was, you think I was telling anybody in here to literally shut up. I mean, spiritually speaking, to stop saying to God, I know I messed up. I'm sorry. I promise I'll do better next time. I see that my motives are bad. I'll work on them. You know, I promise. As long as you're saying, I know I can do, or I know I should be doing, or you're not getting it. The solution won't break through to your heart unless you realize you can't fix yourself. Because even trying makes yourself worse because all your efforts in the end if we're honest, are what we call self-salvation projects. We're trying to save ourselves. See, it's so hard to hear and accept we have no righteousness. And Paul is trying to convince us once and for all of that truth. So shutting our mouths means coming to the end of yourself. It means to stop making excuses. After all, the law says you've failed. It's your fault. No one else's it means repenting for sins, but also it means repenting for good things you've done in the hopes that God would look and say, I accept you, you're good, right? It means not comparing yourself to others because inevitably their weaknesses become what? Your points of strength and their points of strength become, well, their sins, right? I've got to look better than them, so I'll convince myself any way I can that I am. But the law says, no, all are under sin. Comparisons are pointless. One theologian puts it this way. He says, because of the gospel, the way to God is wide open. No sin can hold him back because God has offered justification to the ungodly. Nothing now stands between the sinner and God, but the sinner's, quote, good works. So all you need is need. All you must have is nothing. Huh? All you must have is nothing. But, but at least I've, you say, no, no, the gospel says you have to shut up. The gospel says you have to say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. I'm borrowing that from Rock of Ages, the old hymn. And once our mouths have been shut, we can fear God. So if you look at verse 18, it's almost as if Paul is saying, the reason all these ugly things are true all of the ones we read from verse 10 all the way down to 17, 
all those things are true, he's saying, because, verse 18, there is no fear of God before them, before their eyes. So what's the fear of God? Why does it matter for the solution? It sounds like being scared of God, doesn't it? Fearing God. Well, there's certainly a small element of that, but more specifically, the Bible says to fear God is to love him with all of your heart and soul. It says to fear God is to be filled with wonder and awe and joy at the salvation of God. In Psalm 130, verse 4, the, the writer says, With you there is forgiveness, therefore you are what? Feared. With you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. And when you experience, when you see the salvation of God in Jesus, you are humbled to the dust on the one hand, and yet affirmed to the sky, affirmed in a way no one else has ever affirmed you or could. Humility, on the one hand, cures self-centered and comparative thinking, and affirmation cures self-despair and excuse-making. You get all of that in the gospel. Doesn't that sound good? If you struggle with, with one of those two things. Because in the gospel, you see, God came seeking you. No one seeks him, Paul says here. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Well, if that's true, then God had to come for you. He desired to come for you. In the person of Jesus Christ, God's not turned aside, but he has set his love on you like a heat-seeking missile. He came searching for you, you, specifically you, in the economy or in the... the uh, yeah, in the economy of redemption, you were in his mind, you individually. And in order to free us, in order to bring us out from under sin, verse 9, all are under sin, how do we get out from underneath it? Jesus Christ had to go under it. He had to go under the sword of God's wrath. If you look back at the assurance of pardon Joe read, the Bible says in verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5, the Bible says Jesus literally became sin. The cross was necessary because we had to be stripped of everything. We had to be made naked of all of our works. Remember, nothing in my hands I bring. All you have to have is nothing. And so we had to be stripped of all of that. We had to be made naked. And so instead of us, Jesus was stripped naked. And in him, as he was stripped naked, he in turn gives us a robe. He in turn clothes us. And it's a robe of what we so desperately need and what the first three chapters of Romans are leading us to say, gosh, help me, or God, help me. He gives us his righteousness. He gives us a robe and clothes us with his righteousness. And when that truth gets a hold of us, it will begin to actually cure us of our sins. It will begin to stop our mouths. It will give us motivation to love and serve God for God's sake. Uh, with joy and singular purpose of heart. Now, can you imagine a community like that? Imagine a group of people who lived like that. They could change a city. They could change a community. See, Christianity is not a self-help guide. Uh, it's a whole new way of life. Because in Christ, we become new creations. That's what Paul says in uh, the assurance of pardon. We become people who are full of fearful joy and wonder When's the last time you wondered? W-O-N-D-E-R, wondered, right? We think of kids wondering. That's why we take them to Disney World. Wow, do you see that? That's what I'm talking about. When's the last time you read the scriptures, you thought of the gospel, you, wow, did you see that? 
Did you hear that? Can you imagine that? The gospel says Jesus Christ came seeking me, one whose throat was an open grave. Are you serious? When you begin to wonder like that, that God so loved that he gave, you'll know this table that we come to now is a, is a high-definition picture of that. So let's pray as we come to the table and ask that God would cause us to fear him, uh, that we might be full of joyful awe and wonder at his work uh, to save us in Jesus. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that uh, because of your great love for us, we are now, as Joe said earlier, made your, your children we're made your friends. It's not based on anything that we could have or have actually done, but it's based on the sheer goodness and love with which you displayed when you came. When you came seeking us. When you came to, to come after us. Because you knew there's no one who seeks you. There's no one righteous. And so you had to be stripped naked in order to clothe us with your righteousness. We pray that that would humble us to the dust and that in you coming and desiring to come, it would affirm us. It would affirm us in, in ways we've been longing to be affirmed maybe our whole life, but now in the gospel we get affirmed because you came for us, you wanted to come for us, and that it would change us. Now, as we come to take of your body broken and your blood shed, would you feed us and would you equip us for the mission that lies before us, wherever it is, whatever it is. Come and do that work even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.